everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Laid podcast, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, in our recent episodes, we've been thrilled to have guests, uh, esteemed guests, uh, Tony Isabella and Hussein Rashid and Anne Nascenti. And we covered three issues of The Avengers, numbers 47 through 49, in which Magneto and the Toad escaped the Stranger's Planet and returned to Earth. Magneto is a crazy man, he's smacking Toad around, and he is determined to get Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch back into the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and away from the Avengers, which he succeeded in doing by storming the United Nations and then uh, causing a security guard's bullet to graze the Temple of the Scarlet Witch. Quicksilver thinks the human did that. He does not know Magneto was manipulating them. Scarlet Witch has lost some of her memories and powers, and they are fully back with the team. Now, prior to that, we reviewed X-Men's number, X-Men number 41 and 42, where our mutant heroes faced the uh, deadly threat of Grotesque. They defeated them, but their beloved leader, Professor X, died in battle. It's not really Professor X, but we're not going to learn that for a couple of years in continuity. So at the time, for our 60s readers, this must have felt like a very consequential story. It's actually the Changeling. Uh, Meanwhile, Jean Grey has been keeping a big secret. So that's kind of all you need going into today's issue in which a lot happens very quickly. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So today we're going to be reviewing X-Men Volume 1, number 43, which is from April 1968. It's called The Torch's Past, written by Roy Thomas, with pencils by George Tusca, inks by John Tartaglione, and letters by Sam Rosen. Uh, but first, we're going to spend some time getting to know our guests. We have the uh, the incredible uh, Rob Salerno returning to guest host with me today. Hi, Rob. Hi. And nice I am... And I am thrilled to be uh, uh, making the acquaintance of the wonderful writer, Mr. Steve Fox. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Let me have you both introduce yourselves. I'd like you to use your gender pronouns. Let us know where we might know you from. And then just a silly question to uh, start with today, uh, based on today's issue. What is the funniest thing that ever happened to you at a funeral? Uh, Let's go in the order of Steve and then Rob, and then I'll wrap up. Sure. My name is Steve Fox. I am a writer and editor. Folks may know me from uh, the recently launched X-Men 92, House of 92, um, at Marvel Comics from Archer and Armstrong Forever, which comes out this week. Oh, yep, you're holding up X-Men 92. Thank you for picking up a copy. Um, I also edit Department of Truth, the Image Comics, and uh, James Tynan and I co-created Razorblades, the horror anthology, um, which is coming out in a deluxe hardcover from Image this summer. And I do quite a bit of work for kids, including stuff like Spider-Ham at Scholastic. Uh, Volume two is out later this year. I have a Dumb and Dumber middle grade novel coming out uh, this summer. Uh, I'm just kind of all over the place. No one tells me no (laughs) to just like try to publish everything. So I just just keep a a little bit in uh, every every realm. Uh, And uh, gender pronouns. And what's the funniest thing to ever happen to you at a funeral? Yes, uh, he, him, and... I, you know, I luckily haven't been to too many, but what I did think of when you prompted this question was um, my dad's girlfriend is fine. My, my dad's old girlfriend, though, her cat um, ran away and uh, that cat's name was Jamaica. And we drove all over and, and looked around for her forever. And, and we unfortunately thought we found her on the side of the road and we went and picked up the body and it turned out to be a raccoon. And that happened more than once. And we then you know, to be polite, buried all of those raccoons 
So we had uh, a string of raccoon funerals and it never turned out to be the cat. She got another cat named Reggae. And then an entire year later, Jamaica came home uh, and then she had Jamaica and Reggae. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, yeah. So some, some raccoons got proper burials and all cats were fine in the end. <laughs> and then Rob, you go next. Hi, uh, I'm Rob Salerno. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, and uh, you might know me from uh, the, uh, I guess at this point it is now a long running blog, uh, Iceman is a Homosexual, in which I am uh, rereading uh, all of Iceman's appearances in chronological continuity order uh, and uh, trying to find all of the clues uh, that he was, that he's been gay this whole time, um, as, as revealed in uh, 2015. Um, as far as funniest thing that happened to me at a funeral, you know, I I don't know if this is really that funny a story. Um, the last funeral I went to was actually uh, uh, my grandmother who um, passed away uh, natural causes uh, just before um, before COVID, um, and uh, you know, she I, I had to like get a last minute flight back to uh, Toronto for this. And um, it was, you know, uh, a, a Sunday morning flight. And uh, I had already, I already had uh, tickets to, um, and uh, like one of these underground warehouse raves in uh, Los Angeles for Saturday night. And I, I did go to it um, and, uh, you know, basically just, you know, partied all night and then went directly to the airport at 6am and, uh, and flew home and, um, may have still been under the lingering influence of, uh, things that I, uh, may have enjoyed at that party the, the night before, um, I don't know if it's really that funny, but uh, it was a it was a weird experience that I wasn't planning on, um, obviously. Um, uh, but there you go. That's my that's my uh, awkward experience. I'm uh, in a life of awkward experiences and wrong things to do at wrong occasions. Uh, Rob, you also recently released a book of original plays, correct? In which you have oh. been promoting uh, thirsty content all over the internet that I very much enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's right. Uh, I'm also a playwright. Um, and uh, I just uh, released my first anthology of plays. It's called Smashing Young Man. It's available on uh, Amazon. Um, and uh, you can, uh, you can <laughs> get it. It's, uh, it's four plays uh, that I wrote, um, you know, at the beginning of my career, uh, that all sort of uh, have to do with a theme of what it means to be a young man in the world today. Um, and uh, they were, uh, you know, successful plays when I uh, toured them across Canada. They've been pr uh, produced uh, in Ireland and in the United States. Uh, so it was just, uh, it's, it's felt really good that I've finally been able to put this out in book form and, uh, and, and that people are buying it. And it's great. <laughs> I, uh, I've ordered my copy. I'm looking forward to reading it. And I'm a huge fan of both of yours, frankly. I'm so happy to have you both here. My name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I am uh, based in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I grew up Mormon, but not in Utah. And most of my memories of funerals are like very, if, if anyone's ever been to Mormon church, they're like very solemn, like there's like no noise. It's like very droney music and like a lot of just like da, 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 da kind of stuff. And so I went to like a number of funerals growing up for like people that I didn't know very well. And I just have memories of like 
wishing I had my Game Boy <laughs> or something <laughs> to like keep me entertained. Uh, no, my first probably profound funeral was my for uh, you know all four of my grandparents in in various uh, degrees. And after every funeral, they would there would be these giant luncheons where you'd see the same type of food over and over, uh, like funeral potatoes with like lots of cheese, <laughs> like lots of jellos. And so I have lots of memories of like my kid sister and I like running around the gymnasium or cultural hall while while the uh, the funeral luncheons are happening. Those aren't really funny stories, but I kind of remember them fondly, although they were solemn occasions. Um, so we're gonna spend the first part of today. Um, uh, 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 podcast, just getting to know Steve Fox. Uh, Steve, we had Steve Orlando on the podcast a while back. Oh, I'm and, so sorry. Uh, oh, he's wonderful. And at the, <laughs> at, the, at the end, as we finished, he's like, you need to have Steve Fox on this podcast because you guys would have fun and he would have a blast and let's make this happen. And so uh, <laughs> I already knew who you were prior to that, uh, uh, primarily because I'm a huge fan of James, uh, James Tiny and um, but uh, immediately I sent you an email that day. So I'm so glad to finally have you on. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey to the X-Men as a fan first. And then I'm going to focus, although you have an esteemed writing career, I'm going to focus most of my questions today on X-Men 92 because it is the, you know, the big thing being pushed because the first <laughs> issue just came out. Uh, yes. So let, let's start with that. Uh, tell us about your journey as an X-Men fan, if you will. Yeah, well, it, it, it's appropriate that we're reading um, an arc like this because my first memory of the X-Men is getting a VHS of Pride of the X-Men, um, which of course includes Magneto being a little more uh, megalomaniacal than he, he is in later iterations and also uh, kicking the crap out of Toad all the time. Uh, so I have a lot of fond memories of Toad as a punching bag. Um, but yeah, Pride of the X-Men was, was probably my first ever exposure along the same time that the Toy Biz line started ro uh, rolling out. So I was a huge fan of the action figures. And it was really the combination of um, Pride of the X-Men, the animated series, and the Toy Biz action figures that got me into comics. So, you know, I was born in the late 80s and timed really well to just, like, have that on-ramp that a lot of 90s kids did because all the cartoons of the time really reflected what was in the comics, more or less. Um, you know, of course, some things massage down for kids, um, but it, compared to something like X-Men Evolution or, you know, later shows that took more liberties with what the source material was. Um, but yeah, I, I was just born into like the perfect era for it. And I never stopped. I've been a consistent X-Men reader since then. And um, I actually was a Marvel intern when I was in college. I went to NYU and and one of the reasons I went there was that I would be close to publishers. Um, so I interned there for a year, uh, a little over a decade ago now. And once I made my way around the publishing world for about 10 years, uh, Jordan White read Spider-Ham, which I did at Scholastic as part of their partnership with Marvel. And he thought I'd be a good fit for X-Men 92. So lifelong fan and a, a little uh, pig version of Peter Parker eventually got me into the office. <laughs> Spider-Ham, Spider-Ham. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I reread your Spider-Ham book this week and I love it, but we won't talk about it a lot today. It's great <laughs> though. It's so fun. 
Um, I want to I want to preface our following conversation by saying I'm a huge fan of X-Men 92. So a couple of the questions I'm about to ask are going to sound like I'm not, but I am. <laughs> OK, OK. So Thank you for the warning for our long term listeners, uh, people come at um, X-Men from all different directions. They learn to love them from all places. But there are so many approaches and thousands and thousands and thousands of comic books and frankly, characters. Now, the 92 era is so fondly remembered by so many fans because that was kind of the height of their post-Claremont popularity, where we had, you know, X-Men number one being launched uh, and millions of copies being sold. And then the, the cartoon came out and so many people are associating this time. Modern era of X-Men books, uh, our, our current readers will know, they've launched Krakoa. The X-Men have their own nation on a living island. They can resurrect all mutants. And Jordan White, it seems, came up with this idea to say, what if the Krakoa era happened back in 1992 using 1992 characters? So my first question, Steve, and again, this will sound adversarial, <laughs> but what is the point of this book? <laughs> yeah, why, no, I mean, why does it exist? <laughs> it, that was really the first question I'd ask myself too. And the point was, one, to celebrate the 30th anniversary of 1992, because as you say, it was both the animated show launched on Halloween of 1992, and in 1992, you're coming off of, you know, the best-selling comic of all time, an extremely popular era for the X-Men. So the, the first and foremost purpose of this series was to celebrate a 30th year, 30-year anniversary, uh, just as the previous X-Men 92 series was celebrating the 25th anniversary. As far as doing it for Krakoa, uh, that, it was not a mandate from Jordan, um, but when we had our first call, that was one of his suggestions was what if we tried to do the entire Krakoa era as if it was an arc of the animated series? Because one of the really fun things about the cartoon was that they would adapt classic storylines um, and stuff that might have lasted you know, a year or two in the comics would get condensed into one or two episodes in the cartoon. Um, and I'm such a huge fan of the current Krakoa books and, and the people making them that, um, that that challenge was just really fun and exciting to me. And so we, I didn't even consider other, other pitches for the book. I was just like, yep, nope, I'm going to do this. Like, let me, let me get back to you with an outline in you know, half an hour as I feverishly write this. Um, but I mean, the other question too, and readers of the first issue will know, this story deviates from what you saw in the 616 continuity, you know, when you see who is fulfilling the Moira role, it's, it's not Moira McTaggart. And that was my attempt at answering why does this exist? Because to me, if you're going to spend, you know, $20 picking up five issues of a comic book, it can't just be a condensed retelling with some different characters. So each issue brings the story into a more and more unique place. So if you've read House of X, if you've read X of Swords, you've read Inferno, the storyline that we're headed toward is not going to be what you expect. So it's a fun what if, it's a tribute to a couple different eras of the X-Men, and it's a chance to just play in a really fun sandbox. Uh, I've said before, I got very spoiled with this being my first, uh, my first thing at Marvel Comics because I did not have to coordinate with anyone or get permission from anyone. <laughs> like there's 160 some characters over the course of five issues that appear either in like real roles or in background cameos. And because it's its own continuity, I didn't have to coordinate with anybody. I could just throw it all on the page and, and really have fun and, and celebrate the X-Men. 
you jumped into the toy box and seemed to have an approach of let's use all of the toys, which <laughs> yes. I love, but you're using the toy box itself. Like part of this issue, and I've only read the first one, obviously, is let's take 1992. Let's use the style. Let's use the puns. Let's use the costumes. Uh, like right across the board, the whole thing feels like a 92 comic. There's a there's a pun with Gambit right at the start where he's like, uh, oh, I can't remember the joke specifically. Something like, you know, why give you one card when you could have the whole deck? And I'm just like, oh, oh yeah, it's 90s puns. <laughs> Yay. Um, uh, this this decision to use all of the characters is a lofty one. And man, I love it. It's really fun. Tell me uh, about your approach to storytelling with a cast this size. Yeah, well, I mean, writing a team book is a fun challenge because you have 20 pages. And even if you're, you know, your core cast is seven or eight characters, that's a lot of people to give attention to in just 20 pages while advancing the plot and having villains and fun set pieces. So when I say 160 characters, I, I don't mean they all play equal sized roles. You know, my boy Tusk is just in the background, but that's exciting to me because I had a Tusk action figure. So, you know, a lot of them are fun cameos, but for the Krakoa era that we're in right now in the main continuity, as you said uh, up front, you know, because of resurrection, because of amnesty, you can use pretty much any mutant who's ever existed. So to make this feel distinct, I knew I needed to lean into a more 90s style of writing. I knew that I needed to try to evoke, you know, when you read Rogue, you want to hear Lenore Zahn's voice. Like when you read Wolverine, you want to hear Cal Dodd. Like you want to hear that in your head as much as possible. Um, and also the chance to bring this core cast from the animated series together again was kind of heartwarming to me as a fan, because if you think about it, even though all these cast members have had really awesome runs in the past 10, 15, 20 years, it hasn't been that often that they've all been together. You know, you've got Beast over in X-Force, you've got Gambit and Excalibur and now Knights of X. It's not too often that you see these characters on the page together as the core X-Men. Um, so that was really a way to try to distinguish Krakoa in the 616 from Krakoa in 1992. was like, these are our main characters. We're going to stick with it. But it also meant having fun with some other people here and there. Like in the first issue, Psylocke kind of plays an Emma Frost role, um, which is something the previous X-Men 92 series did as well. Because I wanted to stay faithful to who was popular in 1992. Like I've, I've said elsewhere, you know, Emma Frost and Dazzler are two of my favorite characters of all time. If you were to ask me, who do I want to write? They would be at the top of the list, but keeping this faithful to the cartoon and also the early 90s, neither one of them were playing a huge role. So I had to kind of uh, let the story and the premise lead over my, my personal fanboyisms. Um, I have to say, oh, go ahead. just because you, you brought her up, uh, because it's my favorite piece of, of uh, ridiculous X-Men trivia, but uh, when you mentioned Lenore Zahn, uh, you should say former member of the Canadian Parliament, Lenore Zahn. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Which I, I think is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's it's <laughs> my favorite bit of trivia. Um, I, I did want, I, I want to ask you something about um, House of 92, which is, uh, you know, you are now adapting a story that is going to be a five-part, like a closed mini-series. And this story is not complete yet, the, the thing that you're adapting. So, like, without spoilers, like... Are, are we getting an ending on, on this story? <laughs> yes. So here, let me just tell you the No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, we, we always approach this as, you know, 
we're going to have to pick an endpoint and figure out a way to wrap this up in a satisfying way. And we started developing the book. At, when we started developing the book, Inferno, I knew Inferno existed, but the public didn't know Inferno was like on the schedule yet. So we knew that Hickman's like current time with the franchise was coming to an end. So that more or less helped inform what the, the end point was going to be. Um, but it's not going to go anything like it went in the 616 Inferno, because as you'll see, each issue kind of introduces a different wrinkle or complication that makes it its own more unique thing. You know, the first issue, of course, has the reveal at the end and some other differences, but I would say the issue that's already out is the one that's closest to the 616. And, and each issue we get is going to move a little bit farther away into its own storyline. But there will be a, a clean finish. Um, we do have a way of wrapping things up in, the, in a cartoon-appropriate manner. So for our listeners, what I'm about to say is a huge spoiler for the end of issue <laughs> one. Uh, it's out, so it's okay to go ahead. Uh, okay, so I'm going to give a little bit of family story here. I have shown my two children, who are 13 and 10, uh, the X-Men cartoon, front to back, and my 10-year-old, who uses they-them pronouns, hates Jubilee, hates him. He is the funniest, most prolific kid. I just said he. This is a recent change. They are the funniest, most prolific kid, but they hate Jubilee. During the credits, they used to hold up this like boo sign, like whenever Jubilee would show up. So just today, I have my 10-year-old reading your, your comic, and they get to the page where they talk about Jubilee being dead, and they literally came running into the room and like, oh my god, yay, Jubilee's dead in this book, woohoo! And then they come back a few minutes later, having turned the page to the big reveal, and they're like, what? <laughs> She's alive, and I hate her, and she looks so dumb. <laughs> I cracked up because it's this iconic, like, image of Jubilee <laughs> at her worst. <laughs> so, uh, tell us about your decision to cast Jubilee of all people in the Moira role. I know you don't have to spoil anything, of course, but sure, that is a decision to be made. <laughs> yeah, and apologies to your child because they are going to have a lot of Jubilee ahead if they stick with the book. Um, so, when we sat down and we talked about what would make this version of Krakoa and this story distinct, uh, you know, I, I quickly identified like the Moira role as one to change because while Moira did appear on the cartoon, she didn't play a huge role. And it just felt like one of the big Hickman era decisions that could have gone very differently in the nineties. And as far as Jubilee, there were really two facets to that. One is I wanted someone whose power could reasonably be evolved to make sense. And so there'll be more explanation for that in issue two, but the, the basic thing is we know her as the fireworks girl, but what are fireworks if not a tiny version of the Big Bang? <laughs> like I needed a comic book science explanation that worked for me. Um, and the other side of it was who is emblematic of the early 90s and the animated series. And I think if you were to ask people who they associated with the cartoon over all else, Jubilee would be very high on that list because she was created in 1989 and she was definitely created to be in vogue in that moment. She's a mall rat. She's talking pop culture. She's got her roller skates. All the reasons that some people absolutely hate her because she's so attached to a specific version of youth, kind of that Bart Simpson, like eat my shorts youth. 
Um, I, I love her. And I think she is a divisive character. I don't blame anyone who gets to that page and is like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> like, if you don't like Jubilee, you don't like Jubilee. But I also think the fact that she was so timely to her era has kind of worked against her uh, at certain points since. Uh, because, you know, the X-Men, they almost always have this entryway character, Shadowcat, Jubilee, Marrow, um, Pixie, Armor, whoever. But of those, Jubilee is really the one that's like attached to when she was, de- when she debuted. Um, you know, you could put Shadowcat in 2005 and there's nothing that's like strictly different about her, but Jubilee's so 90s. Um, so I just want to give her, you know, give her her flowers and celebrate her and make her central to the storyline and and really hammer home the cartoon connection with it. I thought it was a brilliant decision, to be honest. Um, when I got to that reveal on that final page, or it's not the final page, but uh, when I got when we got to that reveal on it, um, because and it actually like in a way I feel like makes more sense than Moira. Um, not, I mean, like, you know, uh, going through like all of Moira's appearances, you can rationalize a lot of stuff, but the fact that, you know, Jubilee only has two or three years of published appearances before 1992 means that, you know, there, there really isn't a lot of retconning that needs to happen. And all of her appearances can be rationalized as like, oh, she's, she finds Wolverine and she's trying to get the X-Men back together for whatever she's trying to do. It all like, it was just like, oh, this this actually makes a lot of sense. I would love I would love to see where this story is going. Like what what if that was like, you know, Jubilee's actual arc here. Um and uh and, and yeah, I feel like, you know, you're right. Like she every every attempt I feel like to divorce Jubilee from that 90s um place where she was created. I feel like um, they keep reinventing Jubilee is like, well, now she has no powers. Now she's a vampire. Now she's a single mom with a kid that she stole from somewhere. No one, no one remembers where that kid's parents are or, or what happened to them or what happened, what that story is about. And, and Shogo never seems to age. <laughs> he's been in the comics for over a decade now. He is still pre-verbal. Um, and, which now is he's great. A, and now he's a dragon. Now he's a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I feel like all of those things uh, actually like detract from the character in a way that, um, you know, just, just really leaning into her being this like 90s, you know, dirtbag teenager, I think is is just so much more fun I would I I want that version of Jubilee back in the comics to be honest. Even even if she is, you know, like I don't know what Marvel time would place her at now, maybe 18, 19, maybe she's 20. Um I still think she would have that kind of nugget to her character which I feel like has been lost a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I so it's complicated and I could go on such a tangent about this, but the push pull of comics is always that we want characters to grow and change with us, but we also don't want them to grow or change <laughs> like yeah. we all want the characters we identify to grow up and do new things but we also want them to play similar roles and that's why generations have always been tough in comics like if you look at dc comics specifically the older titans they've kind of gotten the brunt of that because dick grayson can't become batman for too long so what role does he play especially when you keep creating new robins and the X-Men have an even more accelerated version of that because each generation really likes to introduce the new students. But then all of a sudden you have like eight classes of students who all need to still be basically high schoolers. Um, so it gets tricky fast. And 
I love a lot of the different eras of Jubilee and I'm all about single dragon mom Jubilee, <laughs> like bring it, bring it all on. But this was also a really fun opportunity to, like you say, go back to that kind of like somewhat annoying mall rat roots and, and have fun with that. And that was also a similar thing with Beast was getting to go back to this version of Beast as much as I like and I'm interested in the ways he's changed over the years to becoming this like, you know, absolutely morally bankrupt, horrible person. It's also fun to revisit when he was like the fun college professor hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. And it is fun how Beast is the only character in the X-Men who's allowed to age. Like he, <laughs> he he's written now, like he is in his late thirties, but Cyclops still has to be like 25. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the rule is, like, you just never want to mention it on page. Yeah. Because to me, and listen, if Jordan White listens to this, he's going to kick my butt. But to me, all the main X-Men are in their 30s. Like, there's no, no way around it. Like, Cyclops yeah. is a 37-year-old man. <laughs> like Cyclops has been a 37-year-old man since 1968. Let's, let's oh, get that yeah. out of the way. He's first. been a 37-year-old man since he was 15. Yeah, absolutely. And Which I, I say that like that's super old, and that's one year younger than me. <laughs> it, it's, it's extra funny to me. So I'm not a big live-action person, but it's the average age of the MCU actors it, is like in their 40s. It's not like they're casting people straight out of college. It's older. I think like all of them are like in their 50s, except for the Chris's. Sure. Yeah. And well, it's tricky when you have people like Paul Rudd who just start, you know, ageless yeah. homunculi. But there is a, um, a portrait of him getting old somewhere. <laughs> in but it's funny to me that like we, we've gotten over the hump of having older characters in the, the movies. That means nothing to us, but we can't get over it in the comics. And Jordan is actually a very funny stickler about this before he he left Twitter um, as actively. I remember he had tweeted once like, no, Jubilee's 30 because she was born in 1989. Like she's 30 in, in the, you know, the real world, just like Cyclops is 60, whatever. But in the comics, they're not. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just this, you just can't ever put it on the page. Like the, there is a famous, I know people have said like Emma Frost is much younger because Grant Morrison has her saying that she's like 27 or something, but it's like, yeah, of course Emma Frost would never say her real age. Like, are yeah, you kidding no, me? I 100% <laughs> took that as, like, Emma Frost is just, that she is 27 for the rest of her life. Yeah. Like, reading reading her early appearances, like, reading Uncanny X-Men, the, her New Mutants appearances, where she is the headmaster of a school, I'm like, there's no way this woman is in her 20s. She's in her 40s. She's presented as, like, a <laughs> businesswoman who, like, has lots of experience and no shit. But then again, she's a telepath. Maybe she's making you think she looks like that. Um... Yeah, uh, Grant Grant Morrison. There's several other comics that actually like date her to be 27 in the Grant Grant Morrison era. Like she's her like origin miniseries says it takes place 10 years ago when she was 18. So sure, well, that is it is canonical, I guess. But I don't yeah. know about that origin miniseries in general. <laughs> the, you're talking about the one, the one with the Greg Horn covers, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know. With, uh, with, that, with that, Astrid Bloom. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I remember her. <laughs> that, that series is much better than its covers would let you believe. It's, it's a very funny moment in comics time where the interior... So you take a character like Emma Frost, who at the time was popular for being the bad bitch on the X-Men. Mm -hmm. You give them a cover artist that is full cheesecake, 
but then you make a comic that is basically a YA like coming of age story. Yeah, internet. like the first six issues are about her being an ugly, flat-chested girl. <laughs> and the covers are all her like spread leg yeah. and like two-piece lingerie. White thigh panties, high, like, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was a, a unique uh, unique contradiction of approaches. <laughs> uh, so back to X-Men 92 for just a minute. The, the thing that I'm enjoying most, well, two things that I'm enjoying most about this series so far, or at least the concept of it. Number one, seeing this, uh, seeing this current era redone 90s style means we get to see a lot of the storylines redone with 90s characters. So the five having tempo and healer and karma on it is delicious. Uh, it, it also is coming across, I mean, I grew up in this era, so the uh the ad page that looked like it was uh like uh i don't know like something from pizza hut or or yes. fanta you know like early 90s was so fun it feels like uh like just bubblegum to me but there's also a lot of substance to it um the uh my favorite single moment because i'm a huge nerd is the the image of master mold in space <laughs> it's, it's really fun steve i'm having a really good time with the book and it's only one issue in and i'm sure a huge part of your goal in with this is is to just have fun how has it been received so far how are, how are you uh interpreting the feedback yeah well thank you for saying so and um i i have a friend who i won't expose but he perhaps was on your podcast already but he he really pays attention and i know other people who pay attention to like the X spoilers tag and 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 other things. My rule I set for myself was that if I don't get tagged in something, I'm not going to seek it out just for my own sanity. Um, but the stuff that made its way to me was very positive. Um, the reviews that I saw were very positive. The thing, the big relief to me was just that the majority of people seem to be taking it in good faith because it is fun. Like it's just meant to be fun. It's not overly serious. I wanted to tell a real story, but have it be a blast to read. So like you say, you know, I'm not phoning it in as like complete comedy. Like you will get a real story and, and an arc for a couple different characters, but there's also always going to be these little tongue in cheek nods and some, some gags in the background and things like that. And I knew going in that there was a possibility that people would be like, oh, why does this exist? You know, this is a cash grab, blah, blah, blah. But people seem to be understanding, like, this is just to have fun. Like, this is a fun celebration. It's the 30th anniversary. And you have a whole line of, of in-continuity X-Men comics that are pushing the franchise ahead right now. So here are five issues that are just kind of throwing a party. Like giving you a, a release valve from from more serious ongoing continuity. So you you said I have a friend I want to expose, but can you say like I won't name <laughs> names, but it's basically rhymes with Schlob Schlomerno. Like could you could you give us something <laughs> like that? Uh, you know, I won't name names, but he might have my same first name. Who knows? Yeah, I we may know. have said his name already <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he likes to, a lot of a lot of creators do like to hang out in the hashtags and see what's being talked about. I maybe because I used to work in comics press, and because I have a lot of friends who are just fans and and don't want to make comics personally, but I feel like you should have a space on Twitter to have your honest reactions without feeling like you're being watched. Sure, like, yeah. If someone hated the book and wants to rant about it and does not tag me in it, more power to them. Like that does not <laughs> affect my life. 
if you tag me, we're going to have problems. But if you don't tag me, you can say and do what you want because I'm not the boss of you. <laughs> I, uh, I've listened to your interviews on a few other pods, including X Reads, who we love. And I, I've, I've heard a lot of what's coming up, but it sounds like you have plans to do Ten of Swords. It sounds like you have plans to do some of the other big storylines using 90s characters. What do we have to look forward to uh, without spoilers, recognizing that this episode will come out on May 18th. So I don't know if issue number two will be released by then or not. <laughs> yeah, well, anything will be released by then. Yeah. So unfortunately, there are a bunch of delays publishing wise. So issue two is now coming out in early June, um, which is, you know, a longer longer gap than anyone would like but it worked out because uh my little gay joke and gay nods are an issue too so now it comes out during pride month so there, there's that uh lining up <laughs> um but yeah so i was very excited for more of the solicits to come out because when the book first got announced i think people took it as okay you're adapting house of x but no, 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 we're doing the whole era. So issue two is going to cover more of Dawn of X, Powers of Tin. Issue three is X of Swords or Tin of Swords. It's a little more X of Swords in our book, Tin of Swords in um, the 616. And then um, issue four, the solicit just came out. That's going to be our gala and our Planet X issue. And then issue five is going to be our very specific version of Inferno. So for so our longer... Homosexuals in Marvel Comics in 1992. Well, there are by then. Yeah, North Star has come out by the, by that point. But uh, no, the 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 panel I'm talking about is more of like a sly nod to fans because, of course, you know the cartoon was not going to delve into those yeah. topics in the early 90s. So but yeah, te uh, technically, when North Star was on the cartoon, he was already openly gay in the comics. We have long histories of the X Men being the only book, and then slowly expanding. And then in the 90s, it was lots of books, right? And there, there reached a point, and I even remember as a teenager reading, there reached a point where all the books kind of started to feel the same. Uh, they got wrapped into event after event. And um, as I read it as an adult, as a 43-year-old man now, one of the things I'm loving most about the lineup is every book has its own feel, its own appeal. Uh, and so if your book was like, feeling the same as another book, I think I'd be frustrated, but it's not. It has its own unique <laughs> flavor and its unique atmosphere and I'm loving it. I'm here for the ride. I'm super excited to see what's coming up next, Steve. Thank you for telling us uh, your method and some of your thoughts around it. Uh, this is a great time. I'm having, I'm having fun. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of it because what I think I've said it before too, like my goal was not just to pay tribute to the 90s and to the Krakoa era, but to write the version of the X-Men we have in our heads, like the version on our lunchboxes and on our, our underwear and sweatshirts, like that kind of perpetually iconic version of the team. That's what I'm channeling for these five issues to just give everyone a blast of mutant fun. Mutant fun's my favorite kind of fun. Well, not my, <laughs> one of my favorite kinds of fun. <laughs> so with that, let's uh, let's delve into today's um, issue review. We're going to be looking at X-Men 43. One of the unique things about this era of storytelling is we're seeing kind of a multi-issue epic. We're seeing books tie into each other. This three-part story in Avengers tying into X-Men, which is going to tie back into Avengers. It was rare in the 60s for that type of storytelling to be done. Um, let me ask, uh, I'm going to ask a question, but I'm going to give a disclaimer first. I think this is one of the worst covers that we've seen 
throughout the entire 60s run thus far. I think it's a ridiculous cover. But let me ask your your, uh, <laughs> your thoughts on, uh, your opinions on the cover of X-Men number 43. We have a giant Magneto fighting tiny X-Men. Magneto seemingly has electricity powers. This is not something that happens in the book at all. <laughs> we have a giant word bubble. It's uh, yellow on black that says the power of Magneto. Uh, what are your thoughts on this covers, gents? Take it Not away, much. Rob. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I like honestly the a lot of the cover designs in the '60s pre Neil Adams are, I don't know, they're very pedestrian. Um, this one is a weird one to me. Um, it, it also like it kind of reminds me of um, the that the weird forced perspective on the cover of 39, which is also the cover of the um, omnibus for this era where Cyclops is enormous and the X-Men are like, you know, kind of flanking him and, and really tiny. Um, this, I don't know, like it, it just feels very, like this is the beginning of that era where, um, or it's the second one in the era where they tried to make the word X-Men really tiny and then spotlight a character by saying the power of Magneto, the, the, the mystery, of Professor X, the the angel. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> we don't have anything interesting to say about the guy with wings. Um, this, of course, this didn't work as far as like a sales gimmick, I guess, for the X-Men. And uh, uh, it was eventually scrapped, but it, it's just, I don't know, like they... I this is I, I've said this before uh, on this podcast. I feel like this was an era where um, they Roy Thomas just didn't have many ideas. Uh, and the ideas he did have were often not very good. This one is one where, like, he's clearly, he's got an Avenger story that he wants to tell, um, and he's roped the X-Men into it. And and to be fair, this is one of the few stories where there is actually, like, a mutant-human conflict of sorts. Right, right. Because uh, Magneto wants to uh, mind control all the Homo sapiens somehow. Um, but... Yeah, this is like to me, it's it's emblematic of the the sort of like misunderstanding of what the concept was, and this idea of like let's just throw whatever we can at the wall, see if something sticks. Maybe we can make Magneto a thing. Um, I interviewed him look like he's eighty feet tall. I interviewed Roy Thomas himself, who admitted to me yeah, this was not my finest writing nor my favorite <laughs> book, but I still think yeah. there's some redeeming value here. No, no, no. He <laughs> Roy Thomas has written some great comics. And in fact, he's written some great X-Men comics. He, you know, the, toward the end of his run, I feel like he really stepped up and, and figured out, like, he had something to say. When when uh, Neil Adams comes in, who, yes. who tragically passed away just before our recording here, we'll be doing an, an intensive review of his work in a couple months on the podcast. But uh, uh, by the time this comes out, it will have been a few weeks. But I'm still very sad about uh, Neil Adams passing. Yeah. There are three uh, images on this cover that I find intensely awkward. Number one, we have Beast climbing Magneto's thigh. Number two, we have Iceman, uh, very surprised at how great Magneto's ass is. <laughs> and number three, we have Jean shielding herself from Magneto's taint. And I don't know how else to phrase it, <laughs> but it's very awkward. <laughs> Any thoughts? <laughs> my, my favorite part of this cover, which I think is awesome, I don't know what's wrong with you two, is that uh, instead of just having one of the characters who is more vertically mobile in Cyclops' spot, they have given Cyclops a Tarzan rope 
to enable him to be <laughs> higher up on the no, nothing else obeys any laws of physics on this page but they needed cyclops to have a tarzan rope to swing over to magneto's right flank you know what though that tarzan rope um it's it's like has a long history in x-men comics because you know you get into the jim lee era and whenever there's a group shot gambit is just flying in the air on some tarzan rope that is suspended from nothing <laughs> that is like the iconic all the iconic x-men posters you've ever seen drawn by jim lee that is what gambit is doing he's flying somehow also all of the men on this cover are full jaw open ah like there's this <laughs> giant extended jaw pose from everybody so as we delve into the issue, this is called The Torch is Passed. We open up to a shot of Magneto back on an island. We can assume it's Island M, which we've seen in the comics before. He has built himself a throne out of metal. He is using some random technology that he probably got from the Stranger's Planet to spy on people. He's fully watching the X-Men at Professor X's funeral. And he is uh, later, or soon at least, ranting, well, no, on this page, he's ranting about Professor X's death and how happy he is that Professor X died. Now, the interesting piece in continuity here, when we add everything together, Magneto and Moira and Professor X have worked together and know what the future is, right? So this is crazy Magneto, which we can attribute to his powers, making him a little mad. But does he actually believe Professor X is dead? Uh, if so, what are the implications? Or does he know Xavier is secretly alive? I'm not quite sure what's going on in his psychology here. Wait, it, is the Moira retcon, does it predate this? I thought that it, happens in... No, it predates X-Men number one. It's way back before the beginning. And like they've already reached out to Magneto at that point. Mm -hmm, yep. And then, and then there is a rift between Magneto and Xavier after that, which predates X-Men number one. So the competing Got philosophies okay. takes place after... Uh, so we look at the funeral here. We see a man named Reverend Brown, who is giving the most boring funeral of all time. <laughs> this man has done 15 funerals this week, and he is giving the same speech and just putting a different name in place. Uh, he is going on and on, and there is nobody there. Charles Xavier has no one in his life except these five students. I mean, he doesn't have any family, right? They're all dead. And Juggernaut's in jail or another dimension or something at this point. He's in point. the Crimson Cosmos at this point. <laughs> He's floating in the ethers. And, uh, and the X-Men are, of course, very sad. Jean knows Xavier's alive. She's crying here <laughs> because she has to keep it a secret from everybody else. Uh, Xavier and told her, look, Jean, don't call Moira. Don't put her through this. We know <laughs> she'll she'll be fine. Um, yeah, I, you know, to be to be fair, I'm thinking like the, the X Men don't know his next of kin, um, and they're just like kind of forced to throw a funeral for him. And the only people that even think of calling, we'll get to that on the next page, are the FBI guy Fred Duncan and the Banshee. Like, does he never introduced you to another person in the? <laughs> Four or five years you've known him. Now, obviously, we're adding 2020 continuity to 1960s stuff. But even in the 60s, Xavier was portrayed as very isolated. And even when we get the retcon that he's still alive, this is the changeling's funeral, right? right. So this is a very sad way to bury a mutant. They don't know the changeling. The changeling's family is not aware that he's dead. So they're burying him in another man's grave. By the way, uh, Steve, we need the Changeling back on Krakoa. We can make that happen in the current era. I would love to see that story. 
I mean, oh. no promises. <laughs> when the but, X-Men found out this was the changeling, did they, like, change the tombstone or, like, acknowledge somehow that there's a person in here that is not Charles Xavier? No one has ever done any work with this character except in the Exiles series, right? When he becomes Morph. Can we look forward to Morph in X-Men 92? Well, so if you want a behind the scenes thing and, and the previous X-Men 92 creators admitted this too, so I don't think I'm speaking out of school, but the Morph from the cartoon is, is not really up for grabs for Marvel Comics. He's a distinct character from the cartoon, which is why you've never really seen that storyline done by anyone. Um, but, they, but they did use him in the Exiles series. But that's quite a different version of him. So the, the name is free to use, of course. And, and now there's the younger character named Morph, um, who was introduced in the right. Bendis, Bendis stuff. Benjamin um, Deeds, right? Yeah, Benjamin yeah. Deeds, yeah. Um, so there is a Morph, and then you do have the the white-faced, uh, yellow-caped Morph from the Exiles. But the the sunken eyes jokester Morph from the cartoon is is a distinct distinct character for the animated universe. Uh, before we continue, let me ask a a complicated question. Uh, <laughs> Steve Fox, are you a fan of 60s X-Men comics? I will say my familiarity with that era is the lowest of all of my X-Men familiarities. Um, a couple of years ago, I started a full chronological X-Men read beginning with giant size number one <laughs> so, which is which is literally why i'm doing this podcast because yes. no one no one reads the old, old stuff <laughs> well i don't know if you remember too but even jordan had started a thing where he was going to read one a day and, and tweet about it and um half the days he was like yeah this is not a great comic <laughs> like, we, we had jordan on and he's like yeah this issue is nonsense and i kind of hate it <laughs> He's a straight talker. Um, yeah, but well, so at this point in time, the, the book is already struggling pretty pretty mightily, right? Like sales wise, like the yes, concept, yeah, 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 it's not concept's doing well. not doing great. So, if, you know, I guess the Avengers crossover makes sense in that context too. It's like, how can we juice this book a little bit? I would love to go back and read it someday. Um, but when I when I started my chronological read, I did start with giant size. Well, and killing Xavier makes sense too, right? They're trying to drive up sales. So you kill the leader. Let's see what happens to the teens. I imagine there's also a dynamic of like, and one of the things I was going to mention with this issue, um, it, you know, this era is leaning into the fact that these are teenagers compared to like the adults on the Avengers. Uh, I imagine there was probably the thinking of like, okay, maybe making this old guy like a central character all the time is not the way to make this hip young team hip. Um, so it's like, let's, let's get rid of the, the geezer. Um, and he is the safest one to like shock kill. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, can you imagine if they had just like done away with Iceman back in, in 1960 whatever and we just never got him again? <laughs> well, they killed the changeling, but we don't know that character. <laughs> okay, so Quicksilver runs in. He is living with Magneto on this island and he snuck away. He wants to come to the funeral because he is questioning humanity. He thinks humans hate mutants. Uh, he's feeling grief about Xavier's loss and he's curious. The X-Men rush to confront him and he immediately assumes they are attacking and goes zooming away, uh, confirming his thoughts that they are against me. I've got to stay with Magneto. He is the only one I can be loyal to, which is heartbreaking. 
But also I, speaking as a therapist, which is my day job, I know a lot of people in abusive relationships who have been convinced that their abuser is the only one who can protect them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so Quicksilver is not in a good situation with Magneto. Uh, when when uh, the X-Men return to the mansion, they immediately have a recorded message from Professor X that has been left for them, that he's told them to play in the event of his death, basically. And I'm going to read this speech uh, recorded by Charles Xavier out loud really quickly, because I think it's the most uh, important part of this series. Professor X is alive, we will later learn, and he is again lying to these teenage and manipulating them to untold degrees. So here's what Xavier has to say very quickly. Listen, my X-Men, to this message I've prepared for you to hear after my death. I have so much to say and a final request to make of you, and so little time, so little time. Again, the following is a lie. For the past few weeks, I have known that I was dying, dying of a disease which neither medical science nor my own mutant powers can cure. Therefore, I have been attempting to complete the final stages of your training so that you may carry on when I am gone. And the X-Men are like, oh, that's why he's been such an asshole lately. (laughs) He then says, moreover, so that my mental powers may not be entirely lost to you, I have been secretly preparing Jean Grey. By now, she should have added telepathy to her mind over matter abilities. So this is the first revelation that Jean Grey is telepathic instead of just telekinetic. For if my calculations are correct, you shall soon, you'll, you'll soon be fa- called upon to face one of the greatest mutant menaces of all. It is my belief that Magneto has returned to Earth. And now I have no time left, for I've just learned the location of the sinister subhuman known as Grotesque and must try to stop him before he destroys the entire planet, which happened last issue. If I fail or if I should perish in my attempt, this brief film will say what I myself could not. And now farewell, my X-Men. The torch has been passed. And I know you shall be worthy of it. Now, my theory here is Changeling went off and got murdered and Xavier's hiding in the basement. And he fucking recorded this and left (laughs) for the X-Men after his fake goddamn funeral. This guy's an asshole. (laughs) Any thoughts on this speech? I mean, I like to think he's live streaming it from the other room. He's just making it up as he goes. (laughs) Uh, Rob, anything from you here? I, yeah, I, so um, I just want to like rewind a bit before I get to my thoughts on this speech. Um, the last time I was on here, we we talked a bit about how um, it seemed like the X-Men, uh, they were busking for, for change so they could go rescue uh, Professor X, and it seemed like they were uh, very clearly blitzed out of their minds. Uh, they had hot box between panels. And I, reading this issue... I came to a new conclusion, which is I think anytime the X-Men are out of costume, they are stoned out of their minds in the 60s. And if you look back at that funeral, you have um, like just everyone is acting so bizarrely. Um, like their motions are like all at the top level. Um, when uh, Angel first notices that Quicksilver is hiding in the bushes, he, scre- he shouts out his own name first. He's like, Warren, I mean, all of you, look, it's it's Pietro. Um, and, like, everyone seems a little bit confused. Cyclops wants to go say hi to him, but he has this, like, long interior aside where he's like, I've, I've got to get closer to him so that the preacher won't hear me, but th- th- we, we have to guard our identities, but I'll just inch myself closer to him and he won't notice. Like, it is classic high behavior here um and also 
they're the only five people at this funeral. They've all walked away from the preacher mid like <laughs> preaching to go talk to BHR. They're like, I hope they won't notice. This is all like, they are, they are stoned out of their minds. Uh, and so I think when they got back to the mansion, they are still a little bit like feeling it. Um, even though they're in costume now, you can see like their eyes are a little bit like, you know, Jean and, and Beaster eyes watering and yada, yada, uh, not really able to hold it together completely. I think that is why they fall for whatever it is Xavier is pulling here. He is clear. I don't even think he's live streaming from the other room. I think this is a window into the other room and he is just <laughs> talking to them. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> now the uh, only yeah. the only fight I have to pick with you is you know damn well no version of Scott Summers in the entire multiverse has ever touched marijuana. I and don't think he touches it. I think they all hotboxed in the car going over there, and he doesn't know about secondhand smoke. He doesn't know. He's like, why does it smell like skunk in here? This is outrageous. Amazing. <laughs> uh, Rob, will you walk us through the next few pages? Let us know what happens. Sure. Um, okay. So um, we're now in, uh, like, this is actually a good cutting part for the story. Uh, so we're shifting back to Island M, where uh, Magneto is just kind of like uh, hanging out on the cliff side of this island and uh, attacking random cargo boats that happen to be passing by. Um, he makes a point of saying that after he destroys all of the cargo boat, uh, he lets the crew escape somehow. Uh, maybe there's a lifeboat that we see off panel, but it does look like the entire boat has just been totaled. Um, but he does, he wants the crew to escape so that his legend will spread about how terrible and powerful he is. Um, but he's attacking them because he wants the scrap metal to build things in his, uh, in his um, lair, but also he's looking for a specific um computer equipment that he thinks these cargo boats are carrying um he is telling quicksilver that he needs this equipment to save uh the scarlet witch but what he actually needs uh what he tells us eventually is that um uh he's looking for this uh thingamabob that will uh complete his mind control machine that will take over the homo sapiens but um just at that moment as he's attacking a ship quicksilver returns um, and he sneaks back into the fortress because he uh, uh, doesn't want anyone to know that he was over at Xavier's funeral and considering talking to the X-Men for help. But uh, the Toad, uh, of course, sees him and he's like, I'm going to tell on you because he's a whiny little bitch in the 60s. And that's all he does. I'm, I see you being naughty and I'm going to tell the master and then he'll love me. Uh, <laughs> can we take can we take just a moment? Quicksilver's sneaking in like a teenager who snuck out overnight and is now sneaking back in through the window. And imagine that panel of Toad on page eight. <laughs> imagine that being the image you saw as you walked in. Wah! Holy shit! Wah! <laughs> and, and you know, to Quicksilver's credit, he's like, "I don't give a fuck. Go tell him. Who the fuck do you think you are, Toad?" Like, and so Toad like wanders off and then Quicksilver goes and uh, finds his sister and they hug and then he lies in her lap because this is, you know, they have that kind of relationship. 
Yeah, Look, that Mark- image of him lying in her lap is like the most incesty, uncomfortable thing. Like, where? And I started until to be, Mark Miller gets his hands on them. Well, right, but but like looking at that panel specifically, he is his face is either in her breasts, her stomach, or her groin. Like, there, it's it's. I'm hoping it's her stomach, but that is a very uncomfortable panel. These two are siblings, and it's gross. Yep. <laughs> I mean, they once I, shared a womb. I'm speaking and he wants to again. <laughs> I'm speaking only as a fan here, not in a capacity as a a Marvel creator. But I do feel like a, a, some of that, if I'm being generous, is one of the reasons Pietro always felt a little gay. Is because he's like so close to his sister, and the alternative is that he's much too close to his sister. So uh, I, I like to just think this is a uh, them flirting with with Quicksilver being a little uh, quick and fruity. We have a whole reason. We have a whole two and a half hour trial of Quicksilver, and we come to the same consensus, basically. (laughs) Yeah, I've always thought that Quicksilver felt a little gay because he was so snappy and and bitter. Like he is a bitter old queen. Yes, he is. He is that person, and and I love him for it. Um, But of course, like Magneto comes comes back in because the Toad is told on him, and. Quicksilver doesn't give a shit, but also the first thing Magneto does is uh, he hoists Toad up by his uh, metallic belt that he forces him to wear. (laughs) He forces Toad to wear a chastity belt. I think is, you know, just like one of those like Silver Age details. It's just like, what the fuck? It's it's weird that that's not a Chris Claremont detail. Right? (laughs) In someone, uh, someone in our Magneto trial proposed that Toad is the one who suggested that he wear the magnetic belt. Like, Master, <laughs> let me wear this so you can beat me more effectively. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's actually very likely. This is, this is a guy. He lives to be a bottom. He is, he is a sub to anyone passing by. <laughs> uh, Steve, are you a Toad fan? I am a Toad fan because of uh, Pride of the X-Men. Like I said, I've, I've always had an affinity for the guy. And, um, you know, he's fun on X-Men Evolution. Of course, he gets some interesting parts to play in the Fox movies. So I w- it was an interesting surprise to me. Um, and, and this happened with a number of characters. Compared to, like, the cartoons and the toy line, when you go back and actually read all the comics in a row, like, Toad disappears for, like, 20 years. Like, yeah. Chris Claremont did not give a shit about Toad and and one nothing to do with him. Um, so it's it's fun to see those characters that are like big for you as a kid when you're filling in the blanks yourself versus who actually got a lot of page time. Except he never disappeared. He was just used in all the other titles. Yeah, right? Right. he was floating around a bunch of non X Men books at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, some of them were X Men. He was in X Force and he was in Generation X. And every time he shows up, he's like a completely different character. He's the leader of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants who murders women. And then he's the green skin guy who's like obsessed with forest toads in Generation right. X. He's, but no, I mean before before X Force, no. Toad hadn't been in the com hadn't been in X Men comics for like right, right. fifteen yeah, years. He, yeah, he, he was he in Avengers and Vision and Scarlet Witch. And yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, he his dominant story uh, for those 20 years kind of revolves around either his obsession with the Scarlet Witch or his obsession with being somebody else's sub. So <laughs> like, he, he has like this long period where he's trying to be Spider-Man's best friend, um, which is so fun and so stupid. Um, 
and Spider-Man just wants nothing to do with him. But uh, there was there was a long period where he's just like running around trying to find the new guy who will be his master. Literally, um, literally two episodes from now, we're putting the Toad on trial. I've read his whole chronology front to back. <laughs> I have detailed notes. I'm ready. But yeah, he's this is a weird era of his history. And uh, and we're going to see at the conclusion of his story here in this in this run, he breaks away from Magneto for the first time. Which is uh, which is really interesting. Magneto in this issue also is a four-year-old throwing a tantrum for the entire. <laughs> issue. He's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean that that describes Magneto like for the first fifty issues of X Men. But but particularly here, he yeah. is he's been on the Stranger's planet and he is pissed. He is fucking mad. <laughs> he comes back so angry. Um, as we as we get into pages 11 through 15, Magneto sees a ship nearby and he's like, ooh, a report said this metal ship is something I need, but it's a trap by the X-Men and they have not planned well. So Magneto draws them to the island. They attack. We get this kind of beautiful action shot of George Tuska. It's on page uh, 12 of the comic book, which is a bold reveal. We finally see the X-Men in costume and uh, uh, Iceman creates a slide for them and Magneto again throwing a tantrum, prepares to set a trap. The X-Men attack and he whaps them with a big piece of metal. <laughs> uh, Beast kicks a lit fire torch over at him. Uh, Quicksilver joins the fight uh, because the Scarlet Witch is not using her powers currently. Um, it's, it's a very quick fight, which results in Toad activating a battering ram that knocks out Beast, Angel, Marvel Girl, and Cyclops all with one hit, which is just fucking ridiculous. This is the writer and the artist going, holy shit, we only have one page left. We need a conclusion. <laughs> uh, things explode when Cyclops tries to shoot it, and Magneto knocks them out with an electrified floor that he prepared in advance. So it's like a very quick kind of action sequence at the end. Did you guys have any moments during this fight that you enjoyed or thought were ridiculous or both? <laughs> I So what I love, and this is me not, not separating my like fan brain from my writer brain, is what creators think needs explaining and what doesn't. Like, we're, we're going to kind of mostly gloss over Magneto just picking up ships and, you know, maybe killing their whole crew. But the first it thing does, ex- It does specifically state he let the crew go first before he oh, acquired sure. them. But then the, the moment the X-Men jump out in that, that action shot you mentioned, Warren's talking about his allowance and how they were able to afford to charter a ship. And it's like, this is what we're going to pump the brakes and like spend time explaining is how you chartered the ship. Like, that's your priority here. I also really loved when um, Hank is like, still letting metal do all your dirty work for you. You magnetize malevolent. Yeah, man, that's his power. You lead with your feet all the time. Like, He's Magneto. What do you expect? I, I love on this page, on, on, on page 12, um, the X-Men have executed this like really sneaky plan where they're going to hide on this ship until Magneto brings the ship onto the island. And that way, like they'll sneak in. And immediately they junk it by getting right into costume and having Iceman <laughs> build like a big ice bridge that's going to take them onto the island in full view of like every everyone who can see them on the island. Like, what was the point of this plan? <laughs> Xavier told them in his will or whatever that was that they needed to go after Magneto. So they did. Oh, oh, we've, I forgot to mention, there's a, a, a mention of Angel saying, thank goodness my parents gave me my allowance this week and it allowed me to book passage on this ship. And then the others are like, you could have bought the whole damn ship, bitch. 
which is amazing. I uh, I also think the fact that the battering ram has an actual ram head is yes. delicious. It's wonderful. <laughs> the the most consequential thing that if we if we boil this down to uh, one fact in this issue that is a game changer, we have the revelation that Gene is telepathic. Now, we recently did uh, an issue or an episode with Maria Wolf where we go back and read Bizarre Adventures 27, where Chris Claremont told the story of Jean as a child going through the trauma of losing her friend and experiencing her death, if you guys are familiar with that. We, we also get in Claremont's run the revelation that Xavier suppressed her technology, uh, her technology, her telepathy to help her cope with that trauma. So when we put that in continuity, we're revealing here that Xavier has now allowed her telepathy to awaken. There are also hints that if her telepathy awakens, she has the potential of becoming the Phoenix because her untapped emotions are what the Phoenix Force actually is. Now, it's been changed in the comics over the years, but her being revealed as a telepath, I think Roy Thomas wanted the team to still be telepathic. Uh, Professor X is gone now, so they need a telepath. But this is a major upgrade to Marvel Girl, uh, this, this fact. And this has changed her character forever because she isn't a mega mutant in telepathy. Uh, the X-Men don't really comment on it here. We just get the passing message uh, from Xavier that says she's telepathic. But this is a big deal in the longer term X-Men mythos. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's funny that it's kind of tossed off in an issue like this. Uh because it is, like you say, it's something we associate with her so much now. Um, but it is funny when doing the chronological read, anytime a telepath gets ridden out, one gets slotted in because I think like X-Men, X-Men writers just really rely on having someone who can do the, the little uh, brain Kung Fu for every issue. So like when Betsy joins the team, it, it's, it's kind of rushed because it's just like, oh man, we really need someone who can read minds again. <laughs> like, we need our human walkie-talkie. Um, but good for Jean. And it's funny too, the, uh, so much of it's retroactive as you were talking about, but Xavier's history of, of really manipulating people and uh, making decisions that he thinks are the good ones, regardless of how they affect other people, it's, it was funny to reckon with in X-Men 92 because in the comics at the time and in the cartoon, he's not so double dealing. Like that's probably an era where Xavier is presented as, as positively as he ever is. So having the like, okay, he's keeping secrets. He's a little manipulative, but he's not like full blown Professor Xavier, you're a jerk. Um, what was a different balancing act? Oh, he's been a jerk since X-Men 1. He's been a jerk all <laughs> the way through. But, but sometimes he's a, he's a really friendly paternal jerk. Not really in the 60s, if I'm honest. He is, <laughs> he is a stern, disciplinarian, angry, bitchy character who lies to the team. One of my favorite stories uh, is, Steve, Steve, if you ever go back and read it, in uh, it, there, there's an issue where Xavier pretends to lose his powers so that the X-Men have to take care of him. They fawn over him. <laughs> they take care of him. Then he sends them into space to fight Magneto and they almost die. And when they, when they get back to Earth, he goes, good job. Also, by the way, I was faking it the whole time. And they're like, ha, 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 ha. Like he's an asshole the whole way through. <laughs> He's keeping them on their toes. It's uh, exper <laughs> experimental learning techniques. Really. I have little sympathy for 60s Xavier. I almost <laughs> I almost enjoy 60s Magneto worse, and he is an asshat. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Rob, any final thoughts on this fight before we transition to the last five pages? Um, no, I mean, I think we pretty much covered everything about this fight that's just... 60s fights are, are so much like, let's just get a cool action shot here and have the writer try to explain it through dialogue later. Um, you know, Magneto can now break apart stones and uh, Quicksilver's running so fast and yet he still can't land a blow anywhere. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and, and then of course, you know, Magneto can just flip a switch, which electrocutes everybody. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot packed into 15 pages here. We get a yeah. funeral, we get a confrontation with Quicksilver, Magneto back in his base, Quicksilver with Toad and Wanda, the fight. Like, it's a, it's a lot packed together, plus Xavier's will. This is a consequential issue, even though it's uh, a 60s nonsense kind of toss away. <laughs> now, in the final five pages, we have this backup feature that's been taking place. We've been seeing the origin of Cyclops. Uh, and this is the final Cyclops story before they transition over to Iceman, which will be next issue. Um, in this one, we see a uh, Roy Thomas writing with Werner Roth uh, doing beautiful pencils, if I'm honest, uh, John Verporten on inks and Artie Simic on letters. We get a five-page backup that basically is Roy Thomas saying, hey, a bunch of you have been writing in to figure out how Cyclops' powers work. Let me tell you. And there's actually some pretty profound stuff that we get right here that has lasted with Cyclops forevermore. Prior to this, we've seen Cyclops' optic blast as both a force blast and as kind of like a tractor beam sometimes, like a, <laughs> not a tractor beam, like a field that can move things in it. It's also been a heat ray sometimes. It's been a little bit inconsistent. We've recently learned in the backup stories that he has ruby quartz, which is the only thing that can block his blasts. And by the way, if you didn't know, Orphan Cyclops uh, goes to an optometrist who discovers that Ruby Quartz will block his blast. That's where Ruby Quartz comes from, which is, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, so we see Cyclops doing a lot of things with his powers. This is the first time we learn that solar rays charge his powers, that he uh, that he draws energy from the sun, that he can run out of energy and then recharge by getting more solar energy. It is specifically stated in this feature that it is not a heat blast. It is definitely a force blast. We also get a lot of details about how his visor works. It can open and close at various lengths uh, or widths to be able to allow very precise kind of focused blasts or very large blasts that can move things or repel things or blast through things. We also learned for the first time that Cyclops has a control thing on the side of his visor and in his hands. So he can he can use his blast because readers are like, wait, how does he use his visor if he's not touching the visor? So this is the first revelation that we get his uh, his his hand stud where he can push it kind of Spider-Man whip style to be able to activate the visor. So clearly Cyclops takes his training seriously. He uses his visor to various effects. But we get uh, we get a lot of revelations about his powers here for the first time. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts. When you say his, he takes his training seriously, I assume you mean his SM training because there's this panel uh, explaining the glove button thing here where he is just chained up to a wall, full like spread eagle. <laughs> yes, yes, and I am here for it. Bob, if you'd like to do some cosplay, I am. I will. I will view and like and share. The the um, sun. Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Go, no, go on. Go on. 
I was going to say the sun stuff has not, not stuck, right? No one ever, because now it's more of the, is that still technically it's true? Still, it's still recognized or referenced in comics over the years from time to time that he gets his powers from solar rays or that he can recharge by using solar energy. That's wild. I feel like I've seen that very rarely. What I do like, though, I was going to mention this with the first 15 pages, is when you read everything sequentially, characters used to have a lot more limitations. And there's kind of a degree of like power creep that happens for a lot of characters over time. So I'm actually a fan of characters having, uh, you know, things they need to recharge or, or more limits to their power. Things can get really out of hand, but it is funny to compare, you know, he needs to recharge with the sun with Magneto being like, Oh, I can magnetically destroy rock because there's atoms of iron in it. Like <laughs> Ma- Magneto's a freaking beast in this issue, and then Cyclops has to sunbathe. So it's a nice way to to show the the variance in powers here. On page four of the backup story, we see him using, or page four and five both, we see him using his his optic blast to save a bus without hurting the people inside. Uh, we see people pushing a boulder on him and him firing it back at them. We also see him using it as a very focused, precise laser. We see him kind of bow and arrow style hitting a, 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 a beast across a long distance, like he's uh, hitting a target. Uh, so there's there's kind of a lot of applications to his power, which I think, again, writers over the years, they love this character. We find ways to use this over and over and over again. These very precise use of his powers and seeing them spelled out this way, I think is actually a really valuable story. Rob, any thoughts from you here? Uh, yeah, I, I I was baffled by how he is stopping this runaway bus by <laughs> blasting it from behind. Um, is it runaway in reverse? I think it, the motion lines are trying to suggest that it's like falling backward. Okay. He's pushing it back up the hill. Yeah. <laughs> He's the little engine that could. <laughs> Um, well, gentlemen, this is this has been delightful. There's some really consequential stuff in what is ultimately kind of a forgettable story, but we see this uh, we see this issue continue into X Men 44, and then resolved in uh, excuse me X Men 44 and 45, and then resolved in Avengers number 53. So our next three podcasts will still stay on this kind of Magneto story, but we're going to see some weird twists and turns, including next issue the uh, Roy Thomas. Uh, brings back the 1940s hero Red Raven uh, for the first time in modern continuity. So there's some weird turns, but we'll get to that next issue. I hope you had a blast today reviewing this with me. I had so much fun with both of you. Uh, Any final thoughts you'd like to share, please let us know. But as you are wrapping up here, where can people find both of you online? And if you're able to make any announcements, what do we have to look forward to uh, coming up from each of you? Uh, Steve and then Rob. Yeah, you can find me online at Steve underscore Fox, F-O-X-E, on Twitter. Um, But I absolutely hate social media, so you'll really just see me promoting my books and then leaving. Um, And then at SteveFox.com, which I I keep updated with everything I do. Uh, And as far as teasers, there's not a lot I can say uh, for certain yet, but I will say uh, X-Men 92 is not the last you'll see of me at the House of Ideas. So, Yay! Hope folks Thanks. dig that, and I, I hope they they enjoy what else is coming. <laughs> Super excited, Steve. And you've been, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan, but you've been a dream to communicate and collaborate with as we've set all of this up. Thank you for 
uh, not only your great work, but but your clear communication. Um, this has been so fun to get to know you today. I'm so happy to have had you here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a fun time. And now I feel like I do need to go back and read more 60s X-Men. Well, as you do, there's an episode of Gray Malkin Lane for each one. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy. <laughs> uh, and Rob, how about you? Uh, yeah, you can find me uh, on uh, Instagram or Twitter at Rob Salerno, um, R-O-B-S-A-L-E-R-N-O. Um, and uh, what I've got coming out, uh, I have my uh, anthology of plays, which is available on Amazon. Uh, it's called Smashing Young Man. Um, you can get it there. Uh, and uh, by the time this airs, uh, my next uh, article on Iceman is a Homosexual <laughs> will be out uh, on my blog, which is, uh, you can find at my website, therobsalerno.com. Um, that, uh, that entry will be covering uh, 1995 and 1996, uh, everything from uh, when we got back from uh, the Age of Apocalypse up to Onslaught. So that'll be uh, Rogue and Iceman's road trip across America. Mm. Um uh, their visit to a Miami gay bar uh, and Iceman's uh, <laughs> Iceman's feud with uh, Emma Frost coming to a head uh, and launching uh, thousands and thousands of fan theories. Um, <laughs> so uh, you have that to look forward to. Uh, you can find me, I keep my own per push, uh, personal social media private because I have kiddos, but you can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter or just Gray Malkin Lane on Instagram. Feel free to chat anytime. Our next episode after this will feature X-Men number 44, which is the Red Raven issue. Uh, we are going to have cosplayers Michelle Waffle and Justin Kosmika back, which I'm super excited about. And we've got the writer of the X-Babies series, uh, Greg Schiegel coming on, which I'm really excited about. I, I, I hope that I'm continuing to surprise listeners as we pull people who are current writers and older writers and different perspectives all the time. Uh, after that, we have The Trial of the Toad coming up, which I talked about uh, on a couple of episodes recently. Um, we are recording this episode at the end of April. I just extended our recording schedule into August and we are already booked and I am so excited about everything coming up this summer. Uh, so thank you all for your continued support and we will see you uh, back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.